Uh, good afternoon, everyone. It's a little close, isn't it? Sorry, I had technical difficulties. That's why I'm starting not on time. Today is Wednesday, March 25th, 2015. My name is Luke Thomas, and this is the weekly promotional malpractice live chat episode, I think 131 or 132. I never really know. Hell, that could be off by like tens or dozens. You get the idea. Today on the podcast, we will talk about Brock Lesnar's MMA legacy, or UFC legacy, really. We'll talk about what's happened to that UFC 186 fight card. We'll talk about Metamorris. We'll talk about um, Rampage's future. We'll talk about um, there's a World Series of Fighting event this weekend. There's a Bellator event this weekend. No UFC, though, obviously. So any of those are up for grabs. None of those are up for grabs. Whatever you really want to talk about, that's what we'll get to. As you know, best place to do that, of course, is in the comment section at MMAfighting.com in a post where this window is embedded. If you would be so kind, uh, whenever you're watching this, be it live or any other time, if you could give it a thumbs up like that, you can see my beat up knuckles, and let folks know you're watching on various forms of social media, be that Facebook, be that Twitter, be that whatever. Just get out there and let folks know. Tap someone on the shoulder at the bus stop, give them the finger, and tell them you got to watch this live chat. Until then, you can't remove the finger from their face. Don't actually do that, but you get the idea. Um, okay, comments that turn green get preference. With that out of the way, let's begin, shall we? <clears throat> All right, it's episode 131 of the live chat. All right, the future. Hi, Luke. Whilst thinking about the greatest of all time tag and thinking its prestige must be limited by the pool of people willing to compete in MMA, what do you think the ceiling is for MMA popularity? And is there a clear route to raise it? Uh, I think we'd have to be very careful about trying to put narrow limits or even grandiose proclamations on um, the ceiling. The ceiling is kind of up for grabs. Uh, the, the, the ceiling to date, of course, is Brock Lesnar in, in UFC 100. Now, he didn't carry that by himself, but the headliner of a show, and, and that's the, that, that was the high watermark, I think, from a popularity standpoint, but at least domestically anyway. Well, probably even globally to some extent. But um, what it would take, it would take uh, a lot. It would take the right kind of uh, environment. It would take the right kind of fights it would take the right kind of um matchup between the two individual people in in that particular case like if you look at boxing like why is manny pacquiao versus mayweather going to be the biggest one ever well partly because you have two guys who are superstars you have a sport that allows superstars to be that big right you have an environment where these two guys are the best two fighters of their era and they happen to be in the same weight class you have these two guys coming from different promotional entities. Like, for example, whenever anything related to this fight comes out, all the PR people involved with Top Rank and HBO, they send out press releases. All the people involved with Mayweather Promotions, they send out press releases. All the people involved with Showtime and Golden Boy, they send out press I get so many releases for just one fight because all these different forces, and you know, there's varying degrees of strength there, are all converging at the same moment on the exact same kind of fight and the exact same kind of opportunity. So there's that as well. Um, and I just feel like, uh, you know, there's just, there's, with Mayweather and Pacquiao, there's a storyline there. 
there's just a lot going on. It's the most important fight for relevancy's sake. It's got a lot of commercial opportunity for the various reasons I've just stated. But, you know, again, the one thing I would hearken back to is how big could it get? I don't know. You know, it would take a lot, but it could do, I would never want to put a ceiling on it. I think it might be a generation or two or three before you ever see anything like what Mayweather Pacquiao is doing from a commercial standpoint. But what I would say is for folks who just don't understand or maybe came to the sport late or maybe forgot, part of what made UFC 100 so great was, yes, it was the centennial event as such. I mean, not quite a centennial, but you get, you get the idea. Um, it had, you know, the ridiculously stacked card, at least for the, certainly the top three fights on there. It had a grudge match at the top. It had a guy who was coming in who already had a built-in pay-per-view audience and Brock Lesnar. But more importantly, I really think that people just don't quite give enough credence to the idea that partly MMA was already hot. Lesnar made it hotter. Um, and, you know, Lesnar individually sold, right? Because the Lesnar-Herring fight did not necessarily, you know, break the bank, although it did very well. But the point being is this. For all of the engineering you can do with matchmaking, for all of the engineering you can do about where you put a fight and who's on the card and how you promote it, those things are great. And you can do a lot for you in that way. Partly it's also the general atmosphere that you're working with. It's just the general climate of popularity. And the two are kind of connected, but in some ways kind of not. And again, in, in many measurable ways, MMA is kind of more popular than what used to be, at least from a global perspective. Um, but at least domestically, and I would argue that UFC 100 was big enough to have, you know, I just don't know when that many people cared so much uh, from a palpable sense here anyway. Um, maybe not in Brazil or anyplace else, but just, just like trying to understand it. Um, UFC 100 was insane. Just so many people wanted to be in on MMA. They wanted to know about it. They wanted to see it. Um, and sometimes you can manufacture that. Sometimes you cannot. Um, so you had everything you had with Aldo McGregor. Plus you had UFC just on a hot streak. Plus you had this guy Lesnar with a built-in pay-per-view audience. Plus you had this stacked card. Plus you had titles up for grabs. Oh, by the way, you were coming off the reality show with Dan Henderson and, and Michael Bispick, it was just the crazy perfect storm. So how high can it be? I don't know. I, I assume it can beat that at some point. But you just, when you really begin to inventory the factors that contributed to the success, you begin to see how hard it is to duplicate it. Um, I'll try to be brief. The Aldo versus McGregor tour is money. Agree or disagree? Yeah, I think it's great. I think it's really great. There's been some questions about, you know, why are they going to Brazil and, you know, the fight's going to be in Vegas. It's going to be on pay-per-view. Why are they going to these different places? Well, the situation's kind of changed a little bit, hasn't it? They have a big partnership with Globo in Brazil. They have a television deal in Ireland. Maybe not the best one in the world, but they've got one. They've got a television deal. Maybe not the best one in the world, but they've got one in London. In Canada, uh, I think they're going to two Canadian cities. This is a pay-per-view a, a buying public. And, of course, the fight's going to be in the United States, another pay-per-view buying public. In other words, they're going to all these places because they have to nurture all these markets. It's interesting to me about this fight because many fights are global fights um, in, in true senses. Not just that it reaches the global audience per se, but that it touches the global audience in um, unique and, and localized way. Connor is Irish uh, from Dublin, right? That kind of thing. But this is the first time it's all sort of been spelled out. 
Like the UFC is showing who it is in 2015 through this process. It's a company based in the United States, still heavily based on pay-per-view, that nonetheless has a global reach with internationally uh, relevant fighters, um, with international audiences that all want a little piece of the action. And this world tour is a way to deliver that, is to deliver upon those expectations, to make sure the market needs are met, to make sure the fight is promoted properly in those markets so that they can get it because only one city in the country can host the fight. That's it. Vegas is going to get it. They're going to get it on pay-per-view because that's the best way to monetize this at the end of the day. But they still have all of these other parts of the equation that need to be nurtured. Um, and so this world tour helps you know, satisfy that. I think doing it embedded was really smart. I think that kind of caught people by surprise a little bit. Um, maybe they had announced they were doing it, maybe they hadn't, but I just remember when the first episode came out, I was like, wow, this is, this is a good time to do it. It feels like fight week with these embeddeds coming out, doesn't it? feels like the fight is going to be Saturday or something. I mean, I don't feel like we're at a fever pitch, but I'm just so accustomed to seeing it that way. I like that embedded was removed from the fight week process and is generally part of the promotion process independent of fight week. Because I think one of the major problems Remember Dana White used to do those uh, the video blogs and the lead up to all the fights, and then they stopped doing him, and then they showed backstage, and then they got kind of sick of that too. Because ultimately, it's the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. By taking Embedded out of the fight week process and now making it a part of the larger fight promotion process, particularly for something as unique as not just this fight, but this world tour, which has frankly never happened before, at least for not for one fight, right? They're, they're, they're finding unique ways to keep embedded fresh because eventually everyone's going to get sick of people, you know, packing their bags and going to the airport. Everyone's going to get sick of these guys cutting weight or, you know, having people cook food in their hotel rooms or whatever the case may be. That's going to get old too. So it's not that, that that doesn't make embedded bad. It just makes it, if it's just about fight week, that will get kind of, eh, all right, not so great anymore. I like that they removed that out of there. It makes everything fresh, unique. It gives a special light because it's a great series to the Aldo McGregor um, uh, fight. So, yeah, I like it a lot. I like it a whole lot. Not much really to complain about it. And, you know, these guys are also, I should say, Aldo and McGregor, they're giving the press what the press needs. And what the press needs is the kind of things that get clicks because you want to click on them. You know, these guys are constantly accusing each other of PEDs. They're having intense stare downs. They're, um, you know, they're doing all the things that are great for print. They're doing all the things that are great for photos. They're doing all the things that are great for video. They're touching the audience and the media in every kind of way possible um, to speak to the fan experience and speak to the media in, uh, in the way in which they can be covered. And so for all those reasons, there's, there's very little to dislike about, about what's happening here. I just hope it ends up winding I don't think I don't think under any circumstance there'll be disappointing sales, but I'm what I am hoping is that what this leads to is a higher sales rate, a higher buy rate than we had initially expected. It doesn't have to be crazy high or you know, oh my God, who will ever touch this record again? That'd be great, obviously. But I think what I'm more looking for is to be pleasantly surprised by the buy rate. I'm expecting a good one. Um, for me, if they got 500,000, I would be very happy with that. You know, I'm not even saying that's likely or possible. I don't know what, what is. I'm just saying at the end of the day, with whatever happens, if they get 500,000, I think that'd be awesome. Action replays. If some kind of instant replay system was brought in to cope with the dreadful mistakes of some refing, who would have the final call uh, on ref decision reversals? 
Um, well, it'll depend on the rule set. I mean, there's different rules about, remember Yamasaki um, could have used a replay, but didn't, so therefore it wasn't invoked. Um, if you could, if some kind of instant replay system was brought in to cope with some dreadful mistakes of refing, who would have the final call on ref decision reversals? Um, it really would depend on, well, okay, so there'd be two kinds of use of the instant replay. There'd be one for the referee in that fight to use it to make sure that he had made the proper decision. And then two, there would be a second layer of screening that would come from the commission itself because either the ref didn't use it or found a way to use it, you know, like an idiot and didn't get it right. Um, so you'd always want to have one kind of final screen there. And maybe the commission would only do that if they were prompted to by the opposing camp or there might be some kind of rule. Here's the point about this. The, the, the general takeaway from this, and I think I was going to write an article about it and then Ben Folks like went ahead and did it before me, which, you know, it was a good article too. I can't even hate. But the basic idea is that, uh, we put, like, if the NFL has a problem about, oh, how far do we want to put the, the, what yardage line do we want to have kickoffs from? 20 or the 35? Um, you know, what are the rules about uh, tackling? How do we want to adjust it? And th they can do that like that. They don't, they don't have to ask anyone's permission. It's their league. It's their sport uh, for all intents and purposes. UFC can't do that. Now, I think everyone loves the talking point, me included, that, Hey, we didn't run from regulation. We ran towards regulation. And I truly believe that the sport wouldn't have survived were it not for that. So it's a condition of existence. However, just because that was the right answer does not mean it doesn't carry costs. There's this mistake that we always talk about that, well, so-and-so was the right decision. This was the right call. He made the right call doing that. The right call often is the lesser of two evils. <coughs> the right call is not some absolute divine intervention where the light is shed down upon us and the answer is perfect in its simplicity and its beauty and its comprehensiveness. No, sometimes the right call is the right call because it's the only call available to you and there may be a ton of other costs associated with it. One of the costs associated with running towards regulation is that we have put in the hands of slow moving, inert, bureaucratic commissions, not in totality, but in large part, the choice to do, uh, rather the, the responsibility to manage the sport. Meaning to get any of these rules changed, and by the way, it's not federally regulated, you have to go state by state, Meaning to get any of this stuff changed, you got to go state by state by state by state asking them to fix it. Good luck. How often are you going to do that? Part of the reason why we have such problems with, with how can these things still be happening? How can these poor decisions still be happening? There's many reasons for that. Again, all the people who are referees all the people who are judges, all the people who are timekeepers. This is a volunteer army. You're going to just get what walks in the door. That's one part. The second part, of course, is that these commissions, by no fault of their own, have limited budgets. They can't realistically do a whole lot. They're not, they're not, they're not capable of giving back in ways that maybe they would like or prefer. They just simply don't have the ability. But three is also that by the nature of what they are, they are institutes of the state government. They are slow moving. 
They are totally bureaucratic. And these are the people you have to go to to get any rule changed, even if minor, and even if it makes a ton of sense. Yes, running towards regulation was absolutely the right call. It is also a call that comes with costs. Well, welcome to it. This is what you get. If you are wondering why problems persist, here you go. And maybe the only answer is, well, we just deal with it. Maybe we can affect Nevada, maybe we can affect California, and maybe we can affect New Jersey, maybe a couple of other states, you know, if they eventually get New York legalized and, you know, bigger states like Florida, they go to Atlanta sometimes, things like that, Georgia, obviously, things like that, and then you just live with the rest, or Texas too, maybe. You get the idea, but, you know, the problems begin to compound themselves the more you realize how, how, how deep it goes. You know, 50 states, if you, could, if you could do fights in all 50 states, I mean, even if you eliminate most of them, 30 states, right? It's a problem. It's a problem. And there you go. So part of your answer is there is no answer. Um, you'd have to either have the, the Association of Boxing Commissions have some kind of authority over them, which you don't. You'd have to have the UFC willing to constantly bang the drum to lobby to get stuff fixed, which I don't think they either have the time or the resources to do. We are, uh, you know, I'm not saying they'll never do anything about it, but for the time being, you're stuck. We are all stuck. So we had to get the sport regulated. It wouldn't be here without it, but this is one of the consequences. Also, though, and you know I've said it on this chat a billion times, this is why I'd like to see them experiment with some rules when they go and regulate themselves. I know that they want to make sure that they do exactly what the commissions are doing, but to me, what you're saying is this totally imperfect system is what we're going to keep copying because we don't want to do anything different than the imperfect. But there are degrees of imperfect. I'm not asking you to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm asking you to keep the core of what it is that you are doing. But I'm asking you to maybe change some things at the margin. Start employing, employing um, instant replay rules that make sense for everybody when you go abroad. No one is stopping you. No one is stopping you. And I don't, you're not doing things. You're not, you're not tightening restrictions, or rather you're not loosening restrictions. You're enhancing the integrity of the product. Right? If you went overseas, you said, we're going to have baller uh, instant replay rules where a referee can go and see them in the event of this kind of error. And by the way, if there's a commission, you can apply to Mark. If there's an error, they can, the opposing team can apply to Mark Ratner and blah, 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 blah. Again, is that a perfect system? No. But if what you're doing is opening up avenues to make sure we correct for errors, who on earth could be opposed? Dream scenario. Pick the fighter in each class you think the UFC really wishes was the champion. Uh, okay. Heavyweight, Velasquez. Sure, of course. Light heavyweight, Jones. Yes. Middleweight, Weidman or Silva? Um, well, I think they now realize that that Silva's opportunity has come and gone, but um, probably Silva because it took so long to convert him into a star, and then they did, and they got a little bit of mileage out of it, but I bet they wanted more. Uh, and for also to nurture that Brazilian market. Welterweight, McDonald. Mm, they probably wanted, um, well, GSP, well, GSP, no matter what, right? Uh, lightweight, Pettis or Cerrone? Definitely Pettis. Featherweight, McGregor? Probably. Especially if they could keep Anderson as the champion at, at uh, 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 middleweight. Bantamweight, Cruz, Faber, Perez, or Pickett? Definitely Cruz. Flyweight, Cejudo or McCall? 100% flyweight, um, Cejudo. Bantamweight, Rousey? Of course. Strawweight, Van Zandt or Nama Yunus? Um, 
I wouldn't say Van Zant yet. And they might be happy with Joanna, to be perfectly honest. Because being Polish, being European, it's a big deal. Were you wrong about Arlovsky? Uh, you were quite pessimistic when Andre Arlovsky was re-signed and what it signaled about the UFC and its heavyweight division. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, are you comfortable to admit that at 36 and moving to New Mexico to train with Jacksons, the Pitbull might be having a second career win? No, I will not admit that. Not even close. Since joining Jacksons, Arlovsky's only loss has been to Rumble, who I don't think I would be incorrect in calling a legitimate threat to John Jones' throne. Personally, I think we, fans and media, uh, MMA media, judge heavyweights to a higher unrealistic standard. you got to be kidding me. I didn't hear the chorus of rancor when the UFC re-signed Rampage Jackson, Joe Riggs, and Ben Saunders, who are all in or around the same age as Arlovsky. Does no one watch this chat? <laughs> when did you ever hear me sing uh, hosannas in the highest when the UFC re-signed Jackson, Joe Riggs, or Ben Saunders? In fact, I went out of my way to say I was the only one. Well, I wasn't the only one. I was one of the few who's like, look, I like Ben Saunders a lot. I love his omoplata finish of Chris Heatherly. You don't get finished by an omoplata in MMA unless you do not belong in the UFC. Fact. There's a reason why elite guys don't get finished with omoplatas. It ain't an accident. When, when people are like, that's the submission of the year, I'm like, well, if you know Jack S about submissions, it is, yeah. Not a knock on Ben. Hell, for Ben to finish that, you know, take, I mean, it takes skill no matter what, but that's never, ever, ever, ever in your life going to work on someone good or conscious. Fact. Fact, especially without a gi, please. With a gi, at least you can hold on to the belt, put your hand inside the pants. You can get the near side hip to fall to the ground. Um, you can even then do the Imanari, do the cross face. It's never going to work otherwise. Um, Joe Riggs, it just seems like an injury prone guy who was just, you know, I like Joe. And I, there was there was a time, man, before that Matt Hughes fight, I thought maybe he could have done something, and then he didn't make weight, and there was all these problems. Um, Rampage Jackson, I thought he looked, you know. I thought Rampage Jackson and Bellator made sense because they needed a guy of that kind of level um, for things to work. But when Krokop was signed, did, did no one watch this chat? These aren't indictments on these guys. It's just this is a young man's sport. These aren't particularly young men. A lot of these guys have some, particularly guys like Riggs, have some miles on them um, who are all around the same age as Arlovsky. Also, heavyweight is the oldest division for a reason. Um, skill is a relative concept to your direct peer. Skill is not a relative concept. Skill is a relative concept to your direct peers. This is why, Jesus Christ, this is why, um, this is why people are like, oh, Ronda Rousey should be pound for pound number one. Ronda Rousey is obviously incredible. Ronda Rousey is undefeated. Ronda Rousey will make women's MMA better. She has already made women's MMA better. Ronda Rousey will make mixed martial arts better. Ronda Rousey has already made mixed martial arts better. Do we understand all the praise that I'm giving Ronda Rousey? Putting her pound for pound number one is the height of cluelessness. Skill is not relative. Like, you're beating people we clearly know aren't up to the highest standard of common excellence aren't even close. Don't even employ game plans or watch tape. Those are the best people that they can give you. And for those reasons, we can't dock you any points. 
but you don't get the same kind of credit that John Jones does. You don't get the same kind of credit that for the run that he had, GSP gets. You don't get the same kind of credit for the run that he had, Anderson Silva gets. You don't get the same kind of credit for the run that he had that even Benson Henderson gets. Who is the Frankie Edgar that Ronda Rousey faced in the women's division? They don't even exist. That person does not even exist. So they might be relative only in the very basic, common, general sense that um, we haven't maximized technical efficiency and proficiency. But you're not like really skilled because your division's not. You're still just not really skilled. And we can tell that. Now, I don't think per se that Arlovsky is not particularly skilled. I think he has a certain set of skills. Um, I think he's okay. But does, if, if you watched him go through that four-fight losing streak in and around the strike force, I was there when he got knocked out by Haratonov, and he walked right past me um, after that foul. I think that was this – I could be wrong. I think that was the same card as Fedor versus um, Silva. What you have to understand about the UFC's heavyweight division, it, it is insanely thin. Insanely thin. If the guys at the top of the game are dudes with a ton of miles on them in their mid-30s, that's all you need to know. There's a reason they're not like that at lightweight. There's a reason why Nurmagomedov is probably going to be the guy. And why guys like Dos Anjos are like right now is the guy. Let's see how they look in six years. They're going to get washed if they try and compete with guys at this level in six years. It's just, it's just not, it's just not the way things go. Now, look, he had a win over against Schaub, which I didn't think he deserved. And then he knocked out Bigfoot, who we've seen has been knocked out a number of times. If this is evidence to you of a resurgence, then I guess in some ways it is because the results are surprising, but um, I'm not sure if, you have to be you have to be um, hitting similar previous periods of excellence to have a resurgence, and I don't see any evidence of that. Someone says the talent isn't thin. You're just high. You're just high. I don't mean to be rude, but if you don't think the talent is thin at heavyweight, I don't know what sport you're watching. It's the thinnest at heavyweight. For at least among the male, there's like maybe flyweight is thinner. Um, certainly not bantamweight, not featherweight, not lightweight, not welterweight, not middleweight, and may maybe light heavy, not even light heavy. It is, it is, it is super thin up at heavyweight. TJ and Barrow no more. Luke, how disappointed that the rematch between Barrow has been canceled due to TJ getting injured? I, I wasn't particularly, um, obviously I feel sorry and, and bad for TJ, but I wasn't, uh, for, I wasn't, I don't know, for some reason that rivalry doesn't speak to me as much. Maybe it speaks to you. I'm not here to say it's bad. I'm not here to... You know, I'm not here to make any comment about it other than personally, it does not necessarily speak to me. So, like, while I feel bad for TJ and obviously the USC's efforts to try to keep, you know, going in Canada, it didn't, um, I wasn't necessarily disappointed by it. Uh, how do you think each fighter would have altered their game? Who do you think would have possibly won in your opinion? I still would have favored Dillashaw just after what a, a astounding beating he gave in the first one. Um, but I think I'd, I, I, you know, this is a conversation I would have had probably next week. But to keep things moving here, because I've sort of stalled on a few questions, I would just say that the guy who had more adjustments to make was certainly Barrow, and I'm not sure I saw those in the Gagnon fight. Now, Gagnon is not Dillashaw, but you get the idea. No Brock Lesnar. Are you bothered that Lesnar has not come back to MMA? Yes. Yes, I am. Hold on, let me get a sip of... Uh... 
I totally am. If you came to the sport after Lesnar, you missed it, man. You missed it. Let me explain to you what was so great about Lesnar. He is nothing like CM Punk, Phil Brooks. He is nothing like Herschel Walker. He is nothing like um, really any of these guys. These guys are even Kimbo. They're just they're not even – put them all together, it's not even the same. He is totally unique, totally and utterly unique in every way. Let me explain something to you. I've never had more fun covering MMA than I did when Lesnar was there. Listen, I can get up on a Friday morning and I can watch one FC, a bunch of guys I don't care about, uh, don't even know who are clearly at a low level. But then again, skills relative, um, who um, who are just doing whatever they're going to do over in Malaysia or the Philippines or whatever. And I can enjoy that. And they can just be me and a handful of guys on Twitter or in the case of the prelims, just me. Right, and that's fine. I, I, in some ways, I almost prefer that, and I don't mind being on Bellator on a Friday night. I'm, you know, I'm 35. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna go dancing at the club? No, nah, I don't mind watching a few guys, you know, crack each other in the face. That's fine. That's fine. I'm married. It's cool, man. I got two dogs and a cat. It's, it's. I, I have a good time doing that, you know. Um, and so all, all, all those things are fun. Like MMA on your own terms, whatever those may be, it's often fun. But what Lesnar did for me, and maybe this is not the case on anybody else, but certainly for me. He brought to life something I had not seen before, even with Chuck and Randy and Tito and all these guys. He brought people to the sport, not just in size, but in engagement. People just wanted to know more about MMA when Brock Lesnar was around. And the light that he gave out on everyone else was crazy. And everyone wants to talk about his pro wrestling background. Dude, sports media, legitimate sports media were never more interested in MMA up to that point anyway, until Lesnar had come along. I mean, it was crazy, the, the requests for interviews I used to get from radio stations all across the country who would want to talk about the sport. I mean, Lesnar for a little bit, yes, but then how does the sport work? And you could use Lesnar as a way to like explain things and, and, and the way in which this sport worked and, and why it did and, and how he fits into everything. And look, you know, he rose quickly and faded kind of fast too. And so he burned bright like he was like a top 40 hit uh, in that way, right? Um, I wouldn't call him a one-hit wonder necessarily, but you get the idea. Um, but he just combined everything. He combined – he just made fight sports fun. There was a grandiosity to everything. And, oh, by the way, for a while he was pretty good. Um, and also he had these theatrics down, and he was this wild man, and he looked the part. It was everything MMA – it was everything heavyweight MMA was supposed to be. The big attraction, the look on this guy – the story that he had, the audience that he brought, and what it did for the sport and what it did for media and what it did for fans. It's crazy, man. It's hard for me to even see anyone even remotely touching what he did in that regard. It was so much fun to watch Lesnar compete. And listen, when he faded, he faded kind of fast. And who knows what he could have been. And that's another sad part of the story. But I just want folks to know, like, for all this talk about, well, he brought the WWE audience. Yeah, he did. And also the real sporting audience, too. You don't get 1.6 million buys on the backs of WWE subscribers. Sorry, you don't. You don't even get that on the backs of the Overlap and a UFC audience. You get that from engaging people who never gave it a chance, who said, I'll, I'll watch just because of this guy. And what it did for everyone else was incredible, man. Lesnar, Lesnar um, I'm so glad he was a part of the sport. I truly, truly am, even though I have to deal with all the pro wrestling crossover nonsense talk. For that reason alone, for what he did, to me is amazing. 
how has Jose Aldo's fighting style changed, remained the same? And someone makes an interesting point here. They say never, according to Connor. Um, yeah, so I went back and watched a bunch of his fights. I went back and watched um, the Mike Brown fight. I went back and watched, you know, what's, what was of the Cub Swanson fight. Um, I would say he's actually become more conservative over the years. His style was a bit more wide open before. Now, he was also fighting less credentialed opposition, but it was a little more wide open before. He is content if you let him. He is content to jab and leg kick you to death. And a couple of body shots here or there or a couple of over-the-top right hands. But short of that, he doesn't do a whole lot in the UFC unless you make him. Now, if you make him, well, then the world opens up. But what he used to do, you know, the uh, Pequeno fight and things like that, he'd be a little more wide open with his striking. He'd take a little bit more offensive approach. He would back people up a little bit more. I think he's. I don't think he minds necessarily seeding territory in that way because he knows he can jab and leg kick and then circle out defensively and never really get caught in a moment where he has to do a whole lot beyond that because he can land, boom, and he's out. Fights reset. Land, boom, he's out. Fights reset. His takedown defense is phenomenal. So this isn't to say he's gotten worse as a fighter. It just means to say there was a long stretch there where I think he realized I'm going to get the most out of my techniques, but I'm going to use the least amount of techniques necessary. Why? Maybe to stay healthy, maybe to uh, make things harder for him to be game planned against. You know, if you show all your cards, people can can work around that. But, you know, just there's just certain things he used to do in other fights. Even in the Mike Brown fight, he opened up more against the fence. Um, but I think from the Uriah Faber fight on, which was still a WEC fight, obviously, but from after that fight, I think he began to say, I can win these fights without putting myself out there in the way that I necessarily have to, which is why I like what McGregor's going to bring to this fight. First of all, I've seen Aldo in person. He's a big featherweight. Do you see how much bigger McGregor is? McGregor is a bigger guy, not a dramatically bigger guy, but he's a, I saw him at the um, UFC 183 Q&A. He's huge. He's a huge featherweight. That's why that cut down to 145 is so hard on him and why I definitely absolutely feel like lightweight is in his future. How soon? I don't know. But I'd be very surprised if he's 31 and 32 and he's still cutting down to 145, if he even can. He's a big featherweight. So when he talks about his power being a whole different ball game, I don't think that's an exaggeration. He's a bigger guy. than I mean, he must be way bigger than Frankie Edgar. Like, you still think about Frank Yeager fighting a lightweight. It's sort of insane. And I also think, for better or worse, mistake or not, uh, he's going to bring the fight to Aldo, not in a generic way, but, like, he's literally going to march his offense onto him. And it's going to be incumbent upon um, McGregor to control the movement of Aldo. Not saying that once you control him, he's some easy, manageable task you can just bully around in the clinch. But as long as he's moving at distance, as long as he's moving at range, as long as he has the octagon space in which to circle, he's a much harder chore. So to me, the question is going to be about the punching power and the ability to cut off the cage and what he does with it. That's going to be the difference. I still think that the speed of Aldo is going to be really hard for McGregor to deal with, at least early. Um but I think it's also a much more compelling fight than people give, her, give it credit. Is the UFC 186 main event injury scenario starting to look like UFC 174 all over again with a poor main card? Yeah, it is. Um, I'm obviously willing 
to give UFC the benefit of the doubt for the injuries, right? There's nothing that's not their fault. Like if Dillashaw gets injured, well, what can they do about it? If And the rampage situation is not an injury, but, you know, they did sign a guy and put him on a card who has this weird situation going on. And we'll find out more about that on April 2nd. I have an article coming out on Sunday about what you need to look for to understand what's happening and what could happen. I'll make it very digestible. So look out for that. Um, but, you know, they took a risk putting him on that card. That They did that to themselves. So for me, uh, and, and even before that, they just didn't have a lot of guys who were particularly tied to that area of the world. So you were banking on star power, and that's one thing you can do if you have enough of it. But if you don't have enough local names, you know, you have some problems and you could say, well, they can't all have all the kinds of same local names. Yeah. Especially when you commit to, you know, nearly 50 shows a year, you just start filling holes, don't you? On all kinds of things. And once you start doing that, the product becomes secondary to the scheduling. The product becomes secondary to the needs of, of, of moving the, 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 the content, just shipping it out the door. Right. Um, listen, in the end, maybe those costs are worth eating. Maybe those are things that are worth it to them. Maybe that's just a necessary result of doing this kind of business. But overall, this is the right strategy. Maybe, maybe that's all the case. But again, it's the same thing with the previous scenario. Maybe running to regulation was the right answer. But you cannot tell me it doesn't come with costs because it does. And this is something that they just sort of ran into. They have some guys on the on the prelim card uh, like uh, Alban Marcier, who are, you know, for example, they're from that area, but they're from tough nations and not particularly good. Um, at least, you know, when I say that, I mean that for this level. Um, obviously, he can, you know, wreck people on the a level down from that. Um, but, you know, this is what we're dealing with. Uh, Chandler is back. Mike Chandler's returning to action at Bellator 138. He has lost his last three fights, including a loss to current champ Brooks. What do you feel he needed to do to change just to get back to his former amazing style and success? Okay, so first of all, I never thought he lost the second Alvarez fight, and I didn't think he lost the second, the first Brooks fight. Now, he obviously lost the uh, third Brooks fight pretty badly. But that's not really what happened in reality. In reality, he lost all three of those fights. And the third fight was, I thought, a stunning indictment of the things um, I had asked him straight here in this office building in a room right across the hall i asked him is your gung-ho forward offense style you know is that really the best way to succeed going forward i think that kind of style was great when you're trying to bully your way through a tournament of guys who are non-rates at least non-rates relative to you but um that's not going to work for prize fighting on individual moments against top uh contemporaries it's just not it's just not. You've got to have defense. He's got good athleticism. He's got good speed. He's got good power. He can scramble well. He's got good wrestling. Um, when he wants to, he's got some some effective combination striking, although I think that needs to be tightened up as well. He's got some submissions when he needs them, although it's obviously not a huge portion of his game. But when you look at his game and you assess it and you say, wow, what's great about Michael Chandler? No one's going to ever say his defense. No one. And that's a real problem. We often look at MMA as one of these sports where because the gloves are small and the rules are so wide open, we often define a fighter's greatness on their resume, yes, on their skills, yes, but mostly their offensive skills. Um, we'll sometimes give a guy praise if he's got insane takedown defense, 
but we usually marry that conversation with, boy, that great takedown defense that, say, Chuck Liddell had opened up his striking. It's still, you understand, it's still put together with something offensive. We never, or at least rarely, I should say, we rarely ever look at a guy's defense and go, wow, man, that is incredible defense. He's just so hard to hurt. He's so hard to hit. Um, and I don't want necessarily who's like a Mayweather stylist because I, I obviously I truly respect that, but I recognize that there are, you know, it's aesthetically just not as fun to watch a guy like that. It could be more fun to watch a guy go out on a shield, but there's nothing worse than watching a guy with a ton of ability do things in terms of his approach to a fight that guys below his level do. Chandler sometimes fights in a way where he uses all of his skills uh, and he has a lot of skills and he's a super duper insanely talented guy, but he just often fights in a way that uh, in his approach to a fight that someone below his level would do. And I really think that defense doesn't need to be a huge component of his game plan, but it's got to be a lot more. He just can't. I think the Brooks fight showed you just can't get rattled like that anymore, man. Not that his chin is weak necessarily, but um, I don't think that's the case. But there's obviously been a toll to the damage he's taken. And more importantly than that, even if there wasn't, even if there hadn't been none of that, those issues per se, um, he's just making it harder on himself than it needs to be. If he could just dial it back a little bit, not much, not a lot, because if you dial back a little, a lot, well, then you just change who he is. He still has to kind of fight the way he is, but there needs to be just a higher premium on protecting yourself and then opening up the offense when it makes sense. What now for Koscheck? His contract is up, and he is on a losing streak. A five fight. I don't think he's won since what 2012, something like that. Um, he is clearly timid about eye damage and is not the beast he used to be compared to today. I know we can't know a man's mind, but is it competitive drive that keeps him fighting? He doesn't need the money. Should he hang up the gloves or perhaps move to World Series of Fighting or Bellator for a while? Well, I would like to see him retire. And I would be very curious to hear what Bellator has to say about him because I don't think he should be fighting in Bellator either. Certainly not without a year or two layoff at the earliest. Um, of course, it'd be 40 by that point, but that's sort of the point. He's, at a, he's a welterweight fighter, man. It's <clears throat> You want to talk about a young man's game? Good luck. I mean, I know some guys do it, but they're pretty rare. Good luck fighting at 35, 36 in that weight class. You can get by at 33, maybe, but not long after that, you're in trouble at welterweight and to me it's like i understand he has commercial and financial opportunities with this contract now up either going to bellator or world series of fighting or using their interest to, to force the ufc's hand to give him a contract because the ufc says outright we're not going to sign you well then they're allowing someone who built his name on spike tv to go back to spike tv uh, okay, maybe that works out, maybe that doesn't. But I'll be really curious to see if Bellator signs him because I don't think they should. I think with, with, with what happened with Melvin Manhoof, I understand that they'll give guys opportunities a little bit longer in their career than others, partly because they have to. Um, Koshchek has more manageable tasks in, the, in those 
organization, so I wouldn't hate it as much. It's not like he's fighting the Ellenbergers and the Eric Silvas over there, but it's not like some pushovers either, like Daly's over there. They could do a rematch there. Daly's still pretty, I mean, his last fight wasn't great, but um, you know, he beat Stetsarenko when no people weren't looking. Stetsarenko is a beast, and he starched him in, under, I think, under a minute. Um, and, of course, there's Douglas Lima over there. It's not like it's just so much pushovers either. So I'd be really – I'm curious to see what they do. I'd like to see him hang it up. I'd like to see him use whatever he's made to go do something else, to train other people, to become Chris Honeycutt's full-time, you know, um, coach. I don't know. I don't know what he's going to do. Maybe go back to Edinburgh. They're a badass wrestling school. Did you watch the tournament? They're pretty good. Uh, what's been going on with the website lately with so many malfunctions? It's not just the website. It's the whole network. They've been having some issues recently. I don't know. But this should be resolved today. It's an interesting question that didn't get recommended, but I want to answer it. Once again, a Metamorphs card is full of UFC names. I love it, but why does the UFC openly let their fighters compete for Metamorphs without a fee? They are making money off the fighters while the fighters are risking injuries and their reputation. If someone like Rory got subbed at Metamorphs, couldn't it hurt his UFC brand? If a Metamorphs card had no UFC names, would they do anywhere near the viewers that they have done? I love it, but I'm surprised the UFC allows their fighters to compete in that organization. Let me ask you a question here. If Metamorphs never existed, to answer you, to, to, to address you, if Metamorphs just snap my fingers and they're just gone, poof, vanished into thin air, would that significantly lower the amount of injuries currently in the UFC? No. Pop quiz. Name someone on a UFC card with a UFC name who was badly injured. I'm waiting. They don't exist. You can easily, easily get tougher roles by doing, let's say, so my gym, for example, has many classes. Every three o'clock, they have a, they have more classes in the mornings for basics. They have the advanced classes. Uh, they do that again in the in the evening, and then 3 p.m. they have a marathon roll class. It's just from one hour, ten minute rounds. That's it. I think you get 30 seconds off in between rounds. So it goes look a little bit longer than an hour. Six rounds, 10 minutes each. You can easily get more hurt there than you could doing a one 20-minute round. Easily. In fact, I would say these UFC guys are much more likely to tap early rather than late. And I think a lot of them have, uh, I mean, Shab did what he did. What did happen to Sonnen? He got choked. Um, Lister's out. Barnett won. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but you get the idea. So now I wouldn't worry too much. I, I can't think of hardly anyone who's been injured real badly in a metamorphs competition. A lot of it has been, even if guys get a heel hook, they kind of let go. Um, I don't remember anyone getting stretchered off or anything like that. So no, I don't. I think I think in fact, uh, while I while I am partly with you on the idea that wow, like. You know, if it was just grappling names versus grappling names, how much of a success would Metamorphs be? I don't know. That's a very good debate to have. But um, they are certainly using the popularity that these fighters get from their involvement with the UFC and what they've done themselves to, and they're leveraging that, which is a smart call. 
But I think if they were truly endangering their athletes, UFC would never allow it. It's not like a kickboxing match. Or maybe you don't get hurt either, but, you know, um, I just think the chances of getting hurt in a striking bout is higher than an a, a average jiu-jitsu tournament, at least in, the, in a, you know, in a way that would put you out of a, uh, a fight. I mean, who's going to get hurt worse? TJ Dillashaw training wrestling or Joe Lazan competing against Dylan Danis? Now, that's a knee bar. Those two are going to go for knee bars. Okay, so we'll see, but you get the idea. Uh, MMAfighting.com, web traffic, North America versus rest of the world. What is the split ballpark figure between the visitors MMA fighting gets in the U.S. and visitors he gets in the rest of the world? Oh, it's pretty substantial. I mean, we do get traffic from all over the world, uh, especially from English-speaking countries and Brazil too. But, um, but um, it's a pretty it's a pretty substantial. I mean, just because of the way search engines and everything over there work, and the way in which people go to media sites, they know it's pretty common. Have uh, you guys ever thought about having a European MMA fighting correspondent? Yeah, sure, if it made sense for one. By now, I don't know that it does. Uh, Kelvin Gastelum and Nate Marquardt at UFC 188. You think Kelvin going to middleweight will help or hinder him? Uh, I don't think it will help him, but I don't know if it will hurt him. Do you think Nate is a good test to see where Kelvin is at this weight? Yes, and I also favor Kelvin heavily. I just don't think Nate – I just think Nate, the reaction time is gone. The ability to take a shot is gone. His ability to use like the physical dimensions and leveraging power he had. I'm not saying that's totally gone, but they've closed the gap completely on that. Um, it's a very winnable fight for Kelvin. Yes. Minimore 6, Barnett versus Cyborg. Thoughts? Going to be a fun one. Uh, that fight will be – Barnett's a bigger guy than Cyborg, even though Cyborg is a heavyweight. That fight is um, – it's just really a function of uh, how flat can he keep Cyborg because Cyborg's whole game is inverting. So to the extent that he can invert underneath him, that then Barnett's going to have some problems. Conversely, if Barnett can keep him flat, it's not even about passing because he can still invert after being passed. Um, it's about how flat can he keep him. That's it. But uh, it's going to be a tough fight for him. Cyborg's going to be just constantly trying to invert. Tornado guard. Also, is there an objective source reporting Metamoris asking for exclusive contracts with their participants? Gary Tonin seemed pretty irked, spelled irk wrong, about it when he was on the Joe Rogan podcast to hype up EBI, but I'm not sure that's a posturing or what. I have a story coming out about it I hope to finish after this chat. I spoke to Metamoris yesterday, spoke to some other people about it, story coming out on MMA fighting soon. Uh, why is Melendez Lamas card so under the radar? It's a great card, and it's on the daytime. Have you ever done a daytime card in the U.S.? It's going to be a, uh, I'll be going to the card and having beer for breakfast. You? I will also be going to the card uh, and covering the fights for MMAfighting.com. I have to be there to pick up my credential at 9.30 in the morning. So that would be fun. Well, why is it under the card? Well, it's a similar situation to UFC 186. There's not hardly anyone on the card that's in any way related to the area. I will say, however... I was driving to the office today, and on the radio twice, I heard ads for UFC 163 at the Patriot Center, which is not in D.C. It's just outside of D.C., um, but it's the Northern Virginia area, which I think is probably a better area for MMA um, than D.C. proper. I could be wrong about that, but that's my hunch. But um, um, 
but you know, it's also doesn't have a whole ton of big names. What it's got is it's it, look, it's a hardcore fans delight. Let me put up on the other side of this. Let me pull up the uh, card right quick. All right. Um, let's see. UFC Fight Night 63. So Mendes Lamas is a great fight, but it's not necessarily one that's a, you know, attention driver. Masvidal versus Ayakinta is an awesome fight, but same situation. Kiesa versus Clark. Kiesa has a name, and they actually they use his name in the ads here. So you get that a little bit as well. Juliana Pena versus Miliana Dudieva. Okay, Pena has a bit of a name, but, um, you know, she's been off for a long time. Clay Guida versus Robbie Peralta is just, I mean, not making any waves at all. Dustin Poirier versus Carlos Diego Fajera, another good fight, but how do you sell that exactly? Liz Carmouche, Lauren Murphy, Gray Maynard, uh, Alexander uh, Yakovlev, and so forth and so forth. Okay, so, and then Ron Stallings is on the card as well. So Ron Stallings is the only guy from the area that's got any bit of a name. Um, and I wouldn't call him necessarily the most popular attraction locally. I mean, he's got some name. He's done some, done well for himself, but... It's not a huge, I mean, Mike Easton was a much – Mike Easton's probably the biggest draw here that's ever gone to UFC. Um, Ron's just not quite like that. So that, that's, I think, a huge reason why it hasn't been making big waves. It only recently started getting advertising during this show. You remember two shoot, two shows ago, I think the Mere Bigfoot fight? They didn't mention it at all uh, during the, the Fox Sports 1 broadcast that I can remember. So it only recently has been picking up a little bit of steam late. Um, I don't know where the ticket sales are. I'm going to try and find out, but – you get the idea. It's just it's just a car that's built to uh, really give back to fans who know a lot about the sport. Um, there's an important fights on it. It's, it's not a bad card under any circumstance whatsoever, but it's just not one of these cards that has a ton of commercial promise. Um, let's see. I might catch some flack for this, but I was thinking recently that Benson Henderson was a better 155-pound champion than Anthony Pettis. Pettis was crowned by Dana and Company as the next pound-for-pound guy that was going to hold on to the title for a long time. I even think you said that once. I did. I thought it. And it's safe to say that Anthony is a very exciting fighter, but thinking about this, I have to honestly say with the fact that Bendo had more title defenses than Pettis did, even some that were questionable wins, at least as far as a champion. Bendo was a more dominant fighter. I'm not sure I understand that. Um, many of his wins were questionable. You can say both Edgar wins were questionable. You can say the Thompson win was questionable. You could say the Melendez win was questionable. And the way in which Pettis was able to beat both Benson and Melendez, finishing both. Certainly, Benson had a longer title run, but I, and there were obviously mistakes made in terms of how we present um the information but um um look here's what i would say do we get some of it wrong with pettis yeah sure but and did henderson hold the title longer yeah sure but say he was more dominant you're gonna have a hard time just to find that Uh, I've already answered this one, but real quickly, does the does the world tour for Aldo McGregor actually help the pay-per-view? 
It makes perfect sense to promote the Aldo McGregor matchup as much as possible. But with that said, do you see any real benefit to this world tour they are going on? As I mentioned before, they're going to touch all these markets because all these markets matter. The Dublin market matters. The London market matters. The Toronto market matters. You get the idea. The Vegas market matters, such as its local attraction in L.A. and on and on and on and on and Rio and everything else. All these markets matter because this fight's going to be important to all those markets for different reasons. At the end of the day, it's a pay-per-view event. But fight week isn't next week. Fight week is weeks from now. This is just about planting the seeds that they can grow to make sure that it's not just a hit domestically, but a hit in Ireland, a hit in Brazil, um, a pay-per-view attraction in Canada, and beyond and so forth. <clears throat> Luke, speaking of Pettis, thoughts on his recent comments that seeing his brother Sergio lose in the same card hindered his performance. Seems very reasonable to me to think that. Fighters are very, and they have to be, they have to be. Fighters are very selfish people. They are people that say, I want to intensely focus on myself. Um, uh, they, they want all the resources poured into them because without that, they think that they can't get the best effort possible. And this is a game like football, like all professional sports at the highest level. It's a game of inches. All you need is just to be slightly better than someone and the whole thing can come crashing down. And so, you know, can we go back and say, well, that's why he lost all five rounds against Dos Anjos? No, probably not. But it also is fair to say, I think in a general way, that watching your brother get knocked out brutally probably isn't the kind of thing that sets you up for success. Um, I'm not saying there isn't any truth to this, but it sounds to me more like an excuse than anything. What's wrong with an excuse? Anyone want to tell me that? An excuse is an explanation. Some explanations are good. Some explanations are bad. If you had to go and take the SAT and you got in a car wreck on the way to the SAT, are you going to score a, whatever it is now, 1600? You might. If you're really talented, you might not. If you have to go and compete and your brother doesn't just lose, but gets physically very hurt, are you going to compete your best? You might. Reason to believe you might not. Not the craziest thing to say, this is not the sort of precursor to my event that I need to deliver the best kind of fight that I can. Again, maybe it, was, maybe it wouldn't have made no difference. That's, I'm, I'm not willing to say that that's wrong. I'm not going to come out here and say, oh, it's crazy. It, uh, um, uh, you know, we're just taking – I'm not taking any way, anything away from Dos Anjos. I think you can – explain everything by a level of technical um, proficiency. However, it's not crazy or wrong or improper or in any way uh, somehow scandalous to say, yeah, maybe watching my brother get knocked out was really kind of harmful. How could that be wrong? How can that be wrong? It's, you, people want to say, well, it's one or the other. Mm, maybe it's both. Maybe it's both. I personally think it is more along the lines of Dos Anjos being a beast that night instead of Pettis having his mind not on the task at hand. Sour grapes on Pettis's part. No, I, 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 don't, I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I really don't. I, don't. I don't see how anyone can possibly think that that's somehow an irrelevant, you know, makes no difference to me. 
Maybe some guys it wouldn't make a difference to, but not every guy is the same guy. People are different. They have different needs. They have different expectations. They have different wants. And so to watch his younger brother, who he is very close with, who I think he lives with, to watch him go out there and lose badly after winning and looking good, um, it can set the wrong kind of tone. It could. That doesn't explain everything. Maybe it explains very little. But to say, well, that's irrelevant? Not so sure about that. Jason Thacker. Luke, did you read Chuck Mendenhall's piece about Jason Thacker? We'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I read it. Uh, I read it before. I knew it was coming out for a while. Um, we had talked about it off air either before or after MMA beat shootings for a while. He's been working on it for a long time. Um, so, yeah, I read it. It was great. It was really good. Um, I mean, you know, I'm sure what else to say because it's one of these sort of novel stories about um, MMA is full of strange characters, you know, all different kinds, really. The powerful, the meek, the rich, the poor, um, the violent, the pacifist, um, the corrupt, the do-gooder. It's got a lot of binary, you know, black and white. Not literally skin color, but you get the idea from a metaphorical sense. Uh, and so trying to uncover some of these guys, even the ones on the more sheepish end of things, um, is a difficult task. And he's such a unique character in MMA, not so much for the for what he didn't for what he did do, but what for what he didn't relative to what everything else that happened. You know, talk about the ultimate fighter in such grandiose terms and oh my god, it did this for the sport and look at all the careers it launched and look at all the guys that came off of it. And and he sort of stands apart from that, even with guys like Loden Sincade, you know. Loden Sincade went on to go and do more. But Thacker was there for just this moment and then gone. Totally gone. Uh, and so finding him and doing everything else was kind of a crazy, crazy thing that Chuck did. Great piece. I, I recommend everyone read it. Uh, Aldo versus, excuse me, <clears throat> Aldo versus McGregor mental games. What do you make of the mental warfare between Aldo and McGregor? Who do you think has the edge? Personally, I think Mystic Mac is demolishing Aldo. Mystic Mac? I mean, I just can't believe the amount of importance you guys put on this stuff. It's kind of funny. Personally, I think, and this is his words, not mine, Mystic Mac is demolishing Aldo. Please tell me how he is demolishing Aldo. Is Aldo going out there and pissing his pants every day? Is Aldo, uh, you know, begging to get Depends and put him on underneath his tap-out gear, whatever the hell he was wearing, because... Uh, He's deeply concerned about the the mental anguish that McGregor is going to unleash upon him. I'm sure he doesn't like it. I'm sure he has very little um, sympathy for it. But I don't. I don't think it is going to affect him from a diminishing of his performance by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, if I were you, no matter which side of the fence you're on about who's going to win that fight and who you like. I would expect this to raise their level of performance, not diminish it. You're gonna, this is gonna elevate both, right? Because that's who these guys are. Two guys who have complete and total confidence in themselves. Aldo's way of handling things might be different than McGregor. Oh, it's so fun, and I'm one of these guys. So fun to watch McGregor say outrageous things and then clap like seals, you know, uh, 
on the shoreline and say, arf, arf. It's fun, but the question is, is everyone like that? Is the guy who is doing the most fun things, is he the guy that's in control? Maybe that's the illusion he wants to create. That doesn't mean it's having any effect on him. Imagine someone trying that with Fedor. It would have no effect. Fedor is not going to go out there and say he's going to bang your mother. Does that mean he's not in the zone? No. So if I were you, I wouldn't say anyone is demolishing anyone else. I think the very idea of that is ridiculous. What I would say is that these guys clearly don't like each other. These guys clearly have a problem existentially with the other. Both guys need the other one to suffer to make sure their greatness is preserved or in the case of McGregor validated. Um, and as a consequence, that is going to raise the heights of performance. No one is going to crumble here. These are different animals. So it's a little crazy to kind of ask it. I can see why, because you're probably a huge McGregor fan. And it's fun to get out there and when he's in Brazil, boo him. And vice versa, when they go to Dublin for Aldo to get booed and ask how long it's going to be for you to hand over your title. All that stuff is fun. But it's got nothing to do with reality. Let's see. Uh, let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Mark Hunt has four fights left. Is that enough time for a title run and a shot? Yes. Four fights. Uh, four fights at heavyweight is enough to get a title shot and then defend it. So, yes, that, not saying he will or he won't, but you're asking is four enough? Yes. Someone says the utter contempt with which you said Mystic Mac. Well, I mean, come on. It's just such a ridiculous thing to say. I, listen, if you watch this chat, you hear very little criticism of Conor McGregor from me. But I'm not calling him Mystic Mac. I mean, please, I'm a 35-year-old man. Uh, let's see. You think if Conor can knock out Aldo... He would be a huge pay-per-view draw, maybe 750,000 buys. I would say he could convert into one. I would also say that Aldo might be able to convert into one. Before, I would say, oh, well, if they do X, then they can get 750. What I would say is we need to see the returns first for their fight, and then I think we can begin to project because we need a baseline. We need a baseline number of what these guys can do, of the kind of things they can put together, of the kind of real commercial appeal that's there with a world tour and and the most important fight in featherweight history and in vegas and on a great card and blah 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 blah, all that stuff all that stuff um once we have that then we can say okay well if this is what we have imagine what we could do in this scenario or that scenario or this scenario so the answer is do i think he become a, he could become a significant pay-per-view draw my hunch is yes my hunch is that this could also be a way for aldo to turn the corner um, but I hesitate to give any real numbers until the first set of numbers comes in. Someone says, shame the UFC doesn't have a deal with Sky in the UK. BT have been great, but Sky could do decent pay-per-views numbers with McGregor. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I, take, I mean, I don't know. How I, isn't Sky like just like subscription cable? Uh, let's see. 
Let's see. Let's see. Um, with TJ out and DJ headlining, if Rampage can't fight for league reasons, do you think the card will be canceled? No. I sincerely doubt they will cancel that card. I could be wrong. Um, I just have a hard time believing that they'll cancel that card for any reason. People debating. Should Montreal be pissed with DJ main eventing? Um, should they be pissed? It's a difficult one for me to answer. Well, no. If you're a Demetrius Johnson fan, you should be excited. Um, what I would say is, if I were a Montreal UFC fan, would I want something more out of a pay-per-view? Um, I certainly think you could. there's a case to be made that you could, right? But I'm not, you know. Look, you could take whatever position you want. You can love UFC 186. You can hate it. Again, whatever way you like it. If you think it's fine and you think it's bull-ass that Demetrius Johnson doesn't get the support that he needs, then vote with your dollars. And if you don't like it and you think it's bull-ass that you got a card that you don't like, then vote with your dollars. Vote with your dollars either way. That's what I will always tell you. And then, But just make sure you send a message one way or the other, supportive or not, to in everything you do as a consumer. That's what you're doing. Let them know. back someone posted a picture of like joey beltran losing a ton of weight it's weird all right momentum streaks in the mma media here we go luke i am quite annoyed with mma media outlets as they are obsessed with streaks and just look at the amounts of wins and losses instead of the way these wins and losses happened and who the opponent was for example Eric Silva never had a winning streak in the UFC. Everyone wrote about it and talked about it. That was often, uh, what? Uh, rarely did people realize the UFC basically gave him easy and hard opponents. He is not really inconsistent. The level of his opponents was. Also, Benson Henderson's, Henderson's three-fight losing streak was seen as a sign that his career was declining before his losses to Pettis. He had many closer questionable victories that he was had one decisive loss against a great fighter in Pettis and a questionable loss against another great fighter in Dos Anjos and a close loss to Cerrone, which I think was BS. I get that the idea of momentum is compelling when you don't think about it, but when professional journalists talk about how many guys someone beat instead of who, who and how, they are doing their jobs wrong. Would you agree? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's right. You always want to assess the individual mat matchup. However, let's sort of take a step back for just a second, if we may. I interviewed Matt Brown, ahead of UFC 145. And if you remember UFC 145, he fought Stephen Wonderboy Thompson. And I'm not sure if that was his UFC debut or not. Maybe he had one fight. Maybe it was his debut. I can't quite remember. But um, I remember when I asked him about Wonderboy's kickboxing background, he made an interesting point because I think Wonderboy had something like 60-plus or 50-plus uh, kickboxing bouts, and he was undefeated. And essentially his point was, um, look, I'm not saying in all those fights he fought the best guys, but to be undefeated for that amount of time is difficult, even when you're fighting chumps, because you might show up injured one day. 
You might show up sick one day. Maybe your wife left you that morning and you have to go out there and compete and you're just not mentally there. Maybe you watched your brother get knocked out earlier in the afternoon, whatever the case may be. There are all kinds of things that can trip you up in victory. MMA and, and, and combat sports, generally speaking, little things can have dramatic impacts. Right? That's why I'm a little sympathetic to the idea anyway of what Pettis is saying about watching his brother get knocked out. Like, just no distractions. I'm not going to deal with it. I think that's fair. I think that's fair. But my point being is this, and Silva's obviously an exaggerated example, right? When you have, um, you know, 16 fights undefeated, even if some of those were gimme wins, just to be able to go that long, irrespective of whether or not there was quality every single time, to me sort of misses the forest for the trees. To develop a streak in MMA is hard. In fact, I asked, uh, we were t I was talking to someone, I think from Fightmetric, about Neil Magny. I think that's right, I can't remember. But I eventually got a number from Fightmetric, which was, how many fighters currently under roster, they have almost 600 fighters, how many fighters currently on the roster of UFC fighters either have or have had, uh, in other words, are they currently on one or have they had one in the past, a three-fight win streak in the UFC right now? 42. That's it. It's hard to streak in the UFC. Very difficult to do. It is statistically quite rare. So just think about that for a minute. Part of the reason why streaks are important is, yes, if you get just too focused on the streak, well, then you can lose sight of what the individual matchup might mean. On that level, you're right. But I would then submit to you again, um, streaks matter because they're hard to do. And they're hard to do for any number of different reasons. They're hard to do. Um, well, that's it. They're hard to do for any number of different reasons. It's kind of, You should accept that a little bit. It's not crazy in a sport where streaks are rare to look at streaks and say, hey, isn't that interesting? Don't, we shouldn't uh, put too much emphasis on it, but you get the idea. Let's see, let's see. Yeah, good question. Luke, it seems like going for an omoplot in MMA isn't insanely hard, though finishing it, it is. Is this true in your opinion? If so, why do you think it isn't used more often or to escape from the bottom? Well, a couple of reasons. Um, yes, you're right. It is uh, easier. To, it, like If you fail on an arm bar or a triangle, depending on the nature of things, I'm a plot is right there for you. In other words, I, I would argue you need to have slightly better posture for um, – triangles and arm bars than you do for omoplata. Not that you can have, you know, lax posture on their part. You can get it. Like, you can hit it all the time. Not saying that. But it takes a little bit more finesse to get a triangle. Omoplatas can be a bit of a last resort or a second resort anyway. So there's that. By the way, Gilbert Burns grabbed the fence to set it up, if that tells you anything. Um, but what I would say is... Um, I would say that uh, as a general rule, and I talked about this on the Monday Morning Analyst, um, when I talked about the uh, Francisco Trinaldo Akbar Areola fight, when you got two brown belts and one is just holding on from full guard, 
it doesn't just bring down his level of performance. It brings down both. Because if I know you're just going to keep full guard on me, I don't really see much need to get out. You're not going to attempt any submission. Let me get this straight. You're not going to attempt any submissions on me. You're just going to hold me at my waist with your legs. Great deal. I will take that every time. It, it brings down the entire fight, not just your individual performance. Uh, and so what I would say is if you don't see them more from the bottom, it's because I don't think a lot of guys practice omoplatas. I think they practice full guard, maybe butterfly guard, maybe back takes from butterfly guard, sweeps from full, um, um, and then scrambling. There's not much else attention paid to it. There's a lot you can do with them applies in terms of back takes. There's a lot you can do in terms of um, converting that into arm bars. But these things just take a lot of practice beyond what I think the average MMA fighter might have to contribute to getting better. <clears throat> um, so someone asked about the Barnett Abreu Metamorphs matchup. I've already talked about that. But then they asked, what are your thoughts on the immediate uh, or what are your thoughts on the network plan? So I don't want to divulge too many details because this is coming out in my story. But if you noticed, um, UFC, excuse me, UFC, Metamorphs is going to be having a subscription grappling network. Um, how much do I want to say about that? Because I don't want to spoil my story. I'll just leave it at that. But I, I'll, I'll put that I'm intrigued to see what the final product looks like. How about that? Uh, all right, one-minute break. Boxers fight for three minutes and get a one-minute break. MMA fighters fight for five minutes and get the same. Do you think it's fair? Should it be two minutes between rounds? What I would say is you can't do two minutes between rounds because it would just create for a disaster from a television standpoint. It would dramatically lengthen the, the, the broadcast. How would you have two title fights on a card if, you know, you had five rounds and there's two minutes between? I mean, you're just dramatically adding time to a card, especially if all the fights go the distance could be hugely problematic in that sense. It's just too late to do anything about it. But what I would say is um, I always enjoyed how the UFC did their business, five five-minute rounds or three five-minute rounds. I also enjoyed at the time the way in which Pride did theirs with a 10-minute first round or in the case of 1FC, they have uh, three or five five-minute rounds with a different level, of, different way of scoring, but getting back to the time. Um, I would like to see a different organization maybe play with this internationally. I don't know how likely or possible that is. But to me, these kinds of things like this method of innovation or adding value by changing the architecture of how the sport is produced makes it much more compelling to me. I, don't, I just don't see a lot of um, everyone's copying everyone else because they think the homogeneity is what the fans are looking for. And I think the fans are looking for a certain amount of homogeneity. They're not looking for gimmicks like a Yama pit, but they might be looking for interesting tweaks. And I don't know, that 10-minute first round, I always thought was kind of awesome, personally. You know, can you do a 10-minute first round with a bunch of amateurs? No, I don't think you could. Could you do a 10-minute first round with under the right circumstance? Maybe once on a card? Maybe just for the main event? I think that'd be kind of fun. I think the more that people play with rules, the better. This is kind of why I like jujitsu right now. Um, it's because you got Eddie Bravo doing his no thing. You got Polaris trying to do their own thing. You got Metamoris trying to do their own thing. You got, um, what's the one that Machaza trying to do? The World Jiu-Jitsu Pro League or whatever the case is called. They're trying to do their own thing. And everyone's trying to creatively adapt rules to make it more enticing for fans or trying to create rules to make it more enticing for the competitors. Competitors want to compete under rules they think are the fairest or the most interesting too. So 
Um, you just don't see that kind of innovation in MMA. Why? Because we ran towards re regulation and we needed to. I'm not saying we shouldn't have or it was a bad idea, but it comes with certain costs. And you know, jujitsu is not regulated, no matter what the Nevada Athletic Commission might tell you, is not regulated by them. And so as a consequence, uh, they have this ability to just adapt and change and tweak and fix and experiment and explore in ways that MMA doesn't. And wrestling's the same way. They, they could tweak some things at the, at the margins, but not much. So, so it has a scoring system idea. Uh, still 10-9. Winner gets a 10, loser gets a 9 or less if it's a very close round. 10-8, close round. 10-7, I'm going to read this. Fairly close round. 10-6, fairly one-sided round. 10-5, one-sided round. 10-4, dominant round. 10-3, dominant near finish. 10-2, dominant saved by the bell. 10-1, complete dominance. No offense scored by opposition. Um, I, I admire what you're trying to do, but creating 10-9, nine criteria. By the way, what happens if there's a 10-10 round? Does that exist? Having nine different standards for judging is a disaster, if you ask me. I understand what you're trying to do. You're trying to differentiate and award points based on how different rounds can be. I think that's okay. But giving nine different criteria would get folks completely lost, more so than they already are. I think you do one of two things. I think you take the current system and you add fine-tune gradients, a 10-8, maybe a 10-7. Even that I have some issues with. Um, or you do what 1FC does and just say we judge the fight as a whole. That's it. That's it. That's all we're going to do. Judge the fight as a whole. Because if you get too fine on the gradients, you get problems. If you get... Uh, well, I think you could, I, I actually, we could make it work without gradients, but you get the idea. If you try to say, well, you know, what's the difference between dominant near finish and dominant save by the bell? Those are identical, just different ways in which they happen. But you can lose a point that way. What's the difference between a one-sided round and a dominant round? See what I mean? These gradients, I'm not sure they even make sense. And even if they did make sense, I'm not sure that's applicable. I, I, I'm not trying to like, you know, bash the idea. I'm just trying to think about all the ways that, look, we're talking about people, people who don't know much. Giving them more options seems like a recipe for getting all kinds of crazy ass scoring. So someone put up a picture of Jason Thacker. It's like a screenshot of when he was entering the ring to fight on the Ultimate Fighter finale. It's got like Jason Thacker, and it's got like the three things UFC lists about him. Muay Thai specialist, wrestling background, has worked on conditioning. And someone asks, um, <laughs> you know, is this something we're going to see more of in modern MMA? Not necessarily having good cardio, but just the notion that he worked on it. Well, I think in Thacker's case, because it was such a key component of the reality show, of how he wasn't in shape, that they wanted to make a note of it. Ultimate Fighter PED use. Uh, Luke, this might be a stupid question, but do you know now that the Ultimate Fighter gym versus gym, there is more chance that the athletes on the show could be taking something? Um, it's going to be regulated by the Florida Athletic Commission, so take that for what it's worth. Probably not a lot, but you get the idea. A question that didn't get reached last week that I still feel is fun discussing. By all accounts, it seems UFC 200, 200 
will go down during the next Memorial Day weekend. It's not that far away to be able to, to at least guess what the main portion of the card might look like. What would you suggest and predict? Off the top of my head, the two biggest fights in terms of skill level, star power, and rivalry could do are Jones versus Velazquez, Rossi versus Cyborg, and if there's any good day to make Silva versus GSP, GSP at this point, that would be it. I don't have much to add to that. I kind of feel like that's great. I feel like Rossi versus Cyborg, that's the top women's fight they want to see, and Rossi's one of the top stars. I feel like Jones versus Velasquez obviously sells itself. GSP, if they can get him to come back against Silva, who wouldn't want to see it? I'm not sure if Silva would still be um, under suspension. We'll see what happens with that. But, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't tweak that much. I think that's pretty good. Let's see if we have one more from the Twitter machine. Would you be okay with a man grappling a woman at Metamoris? Under the right circumstances? Yes, I would. It's something that happens in the gym all the time. It would take a very secure man and a very secure woman. Um, but I think under the right circumstances where it wasn't hokey, where it wasn't a clear mismatch, um, you would really like it. Last thing I'll say about this, there was a girl on the BJJ subreddit who posted, she's a white belt, her opponent was a white belt. She showed up for a grappling tournament. And there was no one in her weight for women. So the, the tournament organizer said, listen, I don't have any women for you to compete against. But if you like, you can compete against the men. And she did. And she put up her match. And the basic takeaway that I had watching her match is, you know, listen, they're both white belts. Okay. You just accept a certain level of skill. But from what I saw, she was better than he was. But he won because he was stronger. But, like, yes, he walked out the victor. I mean, he didn't look bad. But she walked out, even as a loser, still looking great. And I feel like if that's something that can happen at a low-level grappling tournament under the right circumstances, I don't know why that can't happen at Polaris or Metamorphs. In fact, I truly think that, again, if you're in sport jiu-jitsu or sport grappling, whatever you want to call it, the world is your oyster. You can make rules and change things up and do things that no one else can do. Can't do that in MMA. So if you can do it, why not try? What do you have to lose? I don't know. All right. With that said, I have to get out of here. I want to thank everyone for following this live chat. Please share it far and wide if you can. Thank you for watching today. You may email me at luke.thomas at sbnation.com. You know what to do. Stay frosty.